by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they were turned into Galilee and to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now uh, we pray that you would bless these few moments. Lord, at the beginning of every year, we're, we're mindful of time, and I think we're even more mindful uh, that there, there will be a year for all of us that will be our last. And so, Father, we pray that you would take these few moments and use them to help fit us for the eternity that we will all face. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we heard the angelic declaration that a baby who was Savior, Christ, and Lord had been born into the world. Now, if you and I had been living in first century Palestine about the time the angelic host appeared to the shepherds in that field outside of Bethlehem, we would know that all three of those titles, Savior, Christ, and Lord, would have immediately grabbed our attention. The title Christ or Messiah would have been of particular interest to us. For there was no other word in the ancient Jewish mind that could so evoke and carried so much hope and expectation. When tied to a male child of David's line and lineage, born in David's city, 
devout Jews would be counting the days until this Messiah vanquished Rome and its legions and restored self-rule and the throne to Israel. In our text for this morning, the last of the four songs that Luke uses to begin his gospel, this song tempers those kinds of expectations. This baby is indeed Savior, Messiah, and Lord. But through the words of Simeon, we see that his life and ministry will not be shaped by contemporary expectations. Rather, it will be shaped by Scripture. What the popular Jewish mind had uh, thought about when they thought about Messiah was not Luke's great concern. It was not Jesus' great concern. And as we all know, whenever there are unmet expectations, that's where the rub comes. Our big idea for this morning is found on page five in your bulletin. And I promise this was not, I didn't try to do this because, oh, it's, 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 it's New Year's Day. It just worked out this way. The old giving way to the new is both beautiful and brutal. The old giving way to the new is both beautiful and brutal. First, we see that the old is dutifully followed. The old is dutifully followed. In verses 21 to 27, what we see are three different uh, ceremonies that Mary and Joseph followed after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, we're told in verse 21 that at the end of eight days he was circumcised. This is what Moses prescribed in the law. And then when the time for purification according to the law of Moses is over, they're going to bring him to present him to the Lord. Now, there were two things going on there. For a female under the law of Moses who had given birth to a son, there was a 40-day waiting period before the woman could then appear uh, in the temple or in the tent of meeting or before the congregation. She got either nine days if it was a girl or 40 days if it was a boy. She got a break. She got some rest. People often get a little riled up. They're like, well, why? Why is it only nine days for a girl and sometimes it's 40 days for a boy? Because typically, boy babies are bigger. There's more damage, so to speak, in giving birth to uh, a boy than there is typically, uh, or the, so the thought was, in giving birth to a girl. And so after 40 days... The mother can present herself and re-enter into the worshiping life of the community. That's the second ceremony. The third ceremony then is this. Jesus is going to be presented in the temple. He's going to be presented and they're going to offer a sacrifice. We're told in verse 24, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In other words, this was what poor people offered to give thanks to the Lord for the birth of their child. He is called holy to the Lord, verse 23, as Luke explains for those of us who are non-Jews the significance of these three ceremonies. And in the midst of this, this aged devout man named Simeon comes, and as we're going to see beginning in verse 
28, he gives us a song. And we're told about Simeon. We're told that he was righteous and devout. And that he, like all of devout Israel, was waiting. Waiting for God's Messiah to come. Now, it's worth noting that in the midst of this beautiful song that he that he gives us, um, several years ago, I was a part of a denomination that was big on doing and going and sending and sharing, uh, but contemplating and meditating not so much. And so I found myself in a season in which I thought, you know, I, I, I'd like to have something a little more substantive, a little more... Uh, contemplative to be able to read. And I had a friend, or I have a friend, who is an Anglican uh, pastor. And my friend Gene Sherman said, hey, I got just the thing you want. Uh, we have this wonderful thing called the Anglican prayer book. You want an old one. And in the Anglican prayer book, every evening there's this thing called evening prayer. And there's also this thing called compline. And if you're not familiar with them, evening prayer and compline are services in which the liturgy is deep and rich and substantive. Uh, it's kind of like having a, a theological Guinness before you go to bed every night. It's hearty stuff. And every night in both evening prayer and compline, as you thank the Lord for, and I quote, a peaceful night and a perfect end. Simeon's words are used. Simeon's words are going to be used. And the question that we want to answer is why? Why are Simeon's words going to be used? Why is it that Simeon takes center stage? Now, I want to pause here and just note uh, I, I, like many of you, I didn't stay up till midnight, but I stayed up late enough that I'm a little off my game because I've moved to point two before we finish point one. So let's go back to point one. Five times in verses 22 to 27, the law of the Lord is referenced. Did you notice that? In verse 22, we're told that it was according to the law of of Moses. And verse 23, we're told, as it was written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, as it is, or what is said in the law of the Lord. So in other words, all that is going on here is in obedience, it's in fulfillment of what the law commands of God's people. The law of the Lord or the law of Moses shows up nine times in Luke's gospel, but it shows up for us five times in this passage. And the question we have to answer then is why? If repetition shows us emphasis, what is it that Luke is trying to emphasize? Well, let's remember that in the first two chapters of the book of Luke's, uh, Luke is introducing for us themes that are going to show up again throughout all of the gospel of Luke and into the book of Acts. And one of the things that we're going to see repeatedly in Luke and then again in Acts 
is that Jesus and later his followers, his apostles, are going to be accused of violating the law. Jesus' relationship with those who view themselves as the guardians of the law is never going to be great. In fact, next week we're going to see that those who gather around the boy Jesus are they're kind of confounded and they're a little amazed at what's going on. That's the last time there's going to be a really favorable interaction between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. The rest of the time, they are going to be butting heads. The rest of the time, there's going to be conflict. And Jesus himself has to say, listen, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. See, it isn't just that Jesus is going to be accused of violating the law and Luke is keen to show us that, no, 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 uh, you have to understand from the very beginning of his life, uh, Jesus was very much a, a sort of kosher Jew. His parents did everything that the law of Moses required them to do. But the other reason I think that Luke wants to show us this the answer for it is, is uh, given to us in our, in our reading for today. When we read from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says, Christ humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the law. See, this is a picture Luke's introducing for us a theme, namely that this Messiah is going to be one who's humble. He's one who's lowly. He's one who comes not to do what he wants to do, but he's going to say later, he's come only to do the will of his Father. There is in the life and ministry of Jesus, who is Christ and Savior and Lord, a particular kind of humility. Jesus is not the King. He's not the Savior who has to walk around reminding everyone how important he is. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about Jesus humbling himself to the law, it's stunning if you think about the law of God and you understand what the law of God does fundamentally. Friends, the law of God displays God's perfection. Yes, it reminds us that we're not him. But the law of God is perfect. Why? Because God himself is perfect. The law is the reflection of the character and nature of God himself. And here is Jesus subjecting himself to the very law that points to his perfection. Do you see what's going on? Jesus is submitting himself to the very law that tells us how great and perfect and wonderful he is. This is going to become important when the Apostle Paul starts unpacking for us the various and assorted layers of the gospel and the layers of our redemption. Because the Apostle Paul is going to remind us that God the Father is both just and justifier. Jesus is going to submit himself to the law. He's going to humble himself. Why? Because God keeps the very law that points to his own perfection. 
The law shows us how perfect Jesus is, and yet he is subject to it. Now, there's another reason that this is important. We've argued, or we're making the case, the melodic line of the book of Luke as a whole is, it's good news for everyone. If you were a part of the first century church and you're living in the Roman Empire, chances were uh, you would not be uh, a rich Roman citizen. Chances are if you were part of the church, you were a slave or you were a steward. You may have been a free person, but you would not have been a citizen. And so here are folks who are subject to the whims of their masters and mistresses. They're subject to the whims of those who, are, who literally own them and are responsible for their lives. These are people who, in the eyes of Roman law, weren't really people at all. And these are the people who can look to the Lord Jesus Christ and they can understand that here was someone who, even though the law pointed to his perfection, he was subject to it. He humbled himself. And so Paul will say to the Philippians church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That though he was God, he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. The old is dutifully followed because it's going to give us this beautiful picture of what it means when we say Jesus is Savior. Secondly, then, we see how the beauty breaks out in song. We have this beautiful thing called the Nunc Dimittis. The Nunc Dimittis, as we've said, is found both in the service of evening prayer and in Compline. And as we pray for a peaceful night and a perfect end, one of the scripture readings that's always found in evening prayer and in the Compline service is this prayer of Simeon. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. And I thought to myself as I would read it every night, what a weird way to have, why is that prayer there? Well, that prayer is there because we don't necessarily think of it in this way, though we should. That prayer is there, that passage is there because it reminds us that sleep is actually a picture of death. Let me say that again. Sleep is actually a picture of death. I suspect it's why some of you don't like it very much. And this text reminds us that just as Simeon could say, Lord, I can depart in peace because I've seen your salvation. In the same way, we as Jesus followers, we who are indwelt by God's Spirit, should be able to go to sleep each night secure in God's salvation. When I was a, a kid, my parents taught us, uh, I, I suspect it was a prayer they learned. I, I would imagine some of you learned it as well. Uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. 
If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It's a little heavy when you're six. Right? Like you're like, that's a little aggressive. I don't know why I'm a little triggered by that. I'm not sure why we're praying about me dying in my sleep when I'm six years old. But it's an old prayer. And it reminds us of a time in which people dying in their sleep was not really that uncommon. See, the prayer book uses the nunc dimittis because it understands, yes, sleep is a picture of death. And for those who have seen the Lord's salvation, our departure ought to be a peaceful one. We can and ought to go to sleep each night secure in God's salvation. But he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 32 that this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. He's reversing the order that we heard in Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 says, hey, listen, my servant's going to come and he's going to restore Israel. But that sounds kind of easy. So instead of just restoring Israel, he's also going to restore all the nations. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Simeon says, hey, he's going to be a light for revelation to the nations. And also, he's going to be for the glory of your people, Israel. Luke is letting us know that this new covenant people of God isn't just sort of the Old Testament redone. It isn't just sort of part two. But rather this blessing, the blessing is going to be in accordance to the covenant promise that God made to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. This isn't just for Israel. This is for Israel and the nations. And if you're here this morning and you're a non-Israelite, this is good news for you. It's good news for me. It means that God in his redemptive plan and purposes had us in mind. It didn't just accidentally flow over. This was the intention all along. The church would be both Jew and Gentile. Much of what's going to follow in the book of Acts is going to recount for us just how difficult keeping those two groups together is going to be. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, we see uh, the Jerusalem council in which uh, elders and the apostles gather together and they're asking the question, do you have to be, in essence, a practicing Jew in order to be a Jesus follower? I encourage you to read Acts chapter 15 this afternoon and see what kind of answer they came up with. Well, this isn't just a beautiful occasion. Simeon's song takes a dark turn. In verse 33, we're told that Joseph and Mary marvel at what's being said. Again, that's going to be another theme we're going to see as we go through Luke and Acts. People hear the gospel. They see these wonderful things that Jesus and the apostles are doing. They marvel at them. Simeon blesses them, and then he turns to Mary, and he says this, starting in verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed 
for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now this word is dark, but it's also instructive because we begin to see what kind of ministry Jesus is going to have. Jesus is not going to have the kind of ministry where he shows up, says his piece, and everyone gathers around in a circle, starts holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Jesus' life and ministry will be divisive. Through his words, through his teaching, through his actions, the very thoughts and intentions of the human hearts are going to be revealed. Friends, that gets messy and ugly really, really fast. I'm reminded of the words of Alistair Begg when he said, listen, if you knew the truth about me, if you knew what was really going on in my heart, you wouldn't listen to a word I said. But that's okay, because if I knew the truth about you, I wouldn't waste my time even trying to preach to you. Well, that's Jesus' ministry. Jesus is going to come. He's going to be opposed. He's going to be divisive. And through his words, through his actions, he's going to reveal the very thoughts and intentions of the human heart. That's one of the reasons I've never understood a kind of consumer-friendly Christianity. I've never understood a kind of build-your-own-Jesus. Oh, I like the Jesus who does this, but not this. I remember uh, uh, on various and assorted times uh, having people who would say, well, you know, Pastor, you, you said this was true about God, or you said this was true about Jesus. I don't, I don't really like that. Okay. That was the very nature of his ministry. Yes, Jesus could draw a crowd but at the end, when the most significant event in human history is happening, when, when our redemption is on the line, who was with him? Nobody. Nobody. There will be conflict. Jesus' ministry will be divisive. And through his words and actions, he will reveal the very thoughts and intentions of the human heart. Oh, yeah. And by the way, Mary. Verse 35, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary will stand with the crowd that has gathered at Calvary. And she will see her son crucified. The Nunc Dimittis is beautiful, but it's also brutal. Because it reminds us that Jesus coming into the world was not God taking some sort of day tour. But God coming into the world was a declaration of war against a world that was living in revolt against its creator. 
what did you think it was going to look like? How did you think it was going to go? You think you can just call the religious leaders of the day a brood of vipers and a whitewashed tomb? And they're going to go, yes, you're right. We're sorry. It's brutal. Thankfully, though, Luke doesn't end this little pericope, this little story on that note. Uh, He, again, reminds us that this gospel, this story that he's telling us is really good news for everyone. And so he tells us in verse 36 of this woman named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, historical note in the Old Testament, we're told that the daughters of the tribe of Asher are known for their particular beauty. So here's this elderly woman who at one point in time was a a total mega lightning babe. Uh, She gets married. She lives with her husband seven years. He dies. And now she uh, has been a widow until she's now 84 years of age. She's a woman who is a constant worshiper. She's devout. She fasts. She prays. And verse 38, we're told that she comes now that very hour and begins to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And again, we're going, okay, um, Luke, help me out here, bro, because this is the thing. You, you gave us all of this biographical information about Anna. And you've told us that she's this godly, devout, older woman. So I find this, I get to verse 38 and I'm going, okay, so now he's going to tell us what she said, right? He's going to give us the speech that Anna gives, but he doesn't. He moves on and he just blows through it with verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law. Why? Luke, why do you do that to us? You spend all this time introducing this woman. You tell us that she's going to speak of him to all who were waiting. So in other words, they're having church and Anna's going to stand up and tell them what's going on. But he doesn't tell us what she says. Why? I think the reason Luke does this, the reason he goes through all of uh, the biographical information related to Anna is he's making a point. And here's the point he's trying to make. Anna is a non-person. She doesn't count. There were two things that gave a woman not just in ancient Israel, but also in ancient Rome, there were two things that gave her meaning and significance and uh, a sense of importance within the community. They were things that defined her. They were, namely, her husband and his family. And then secondly, the children that she bore, most notably the sons that she would bear. That's what made her wholly human. Did you notice who was not named in this list, this 
a really strangely involved list of biographical facts about Anna. He tells us her dad's name, but did you note what he didn't tell us? Her husband's name. She could have married a dude named Frank for all we know. He doesn't tell us. She was married for seven years and now she's a widow until she's 84. Again, you know what Luke doesn't tell us? Her children. We don't have sons listed. We don't even have daughters listed. In other words, Luke is telling us in this really subtle but eloquent way, Anna is a non-person. And guess what? The gospel is for Anna. This person that no one gives two thoughts about. This person who within her own culture and within the greater society that she's a part of, within this kind of Roman social construct, Anna is a non-person. And here's Luke saying, yes, and you know what? The gospel is for Anna. The gospel is for non-people. And in fact, God's going to use these very non-people to proclaim this glorious message and this glorious news. He's already done it. He did it with the shepherds. And now he's doing it with Anna. Friends, Luke wants us to know, he wants us to understand the gospel is for absolutely everybody. There's no one who's done something so despicable that they disqualify themselves. There's no one who uh, is in a particular kind of social or cultural position that they're so low, they're so debased, they're so degraded that the gospel is not for them. There are no non-people. This gospel of good news is for everybody. One of the questions that I get asked on occasion is, Pastor, do we really have to fence the table? I mean, it seems kind of mean when we tell people who aren't baptized followers of Jesus that they can't come and get a little pre-lunch snack. I mean, it's just old Rotella's bread and two-buck chuck. It's not like we're, you know, dropping a bunch of money on this. Do we have to do that? Yeah, we do. Not just because the book of church order says so. Not just because Paul alludes to it in the instruction that he gives. But friends, we need to remember that each and every week when we come to the table, we are remembering a particular part of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus' ministry was divisive. Jesus' ministry, as Simeon told his parents, was for the rising and the falling of many in Israel.
why should the table, which is now an extension of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, why should the table be any different from his earthly ministry? His life and ministry was divisive. And the ministry of the table reflects that divisiveness. Let's pray. Father, you know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And that is awful. Because there's parts of my heart I don't want to know. There's parts of my heart I spend a tremendous amount of time avoiding or pretending don't exist. And yet, your word tells us repeatedly, not only do you know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, but you love us. Not because of something we've done, not because of our position or our status. No, the the gospel is even for a known person like Anna. So Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we are grateful that as we as we have sung this morning, uh, our only our uh, our only qualification is to feel your need, or feel our need of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for the work of your Spirit, and we thank you for the way that you have drawn us and called us to yourself through these beautiful and gracious words of the gospel. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.